0: Welcome to The Network Break, a podcast where we talk about the business of networking. Very quickly running through some topics of the week with myself, Greg Ferro, and also with me today is Andrew Conry-Murray. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Greg. How you doing? Getting ready to go. We've got to get this done real fast because we've both got places to be. So shall we just kick right on? Go right ahead. So this week, I just published a report on the website of Informa- Information Week, your, uh, your erstwhile employer. My erstwhile employer, indeed, and I thought uh, it might be worth picking it up because it was a bunch of questions. There was 25 questions, 250 responses, and the overall tone was business as usual.
1: Uh, Yeah, this was a survey. uh, Information Week Reports does annual surveys on a variety of topics. One of them, this one is uh, the data center. So we've got uh, a bunch of responses from folks running data centers about uh, all kinds of stuff that they're up to, their challenges, what they're trying to do. Uh, And you wrote the report. So what what stood out for you or caught your eye? Uh, Probably a few things. One of the biggest ones for me was, uh,
0: you know how a lot of the vendors are going on about these converged systems, Cisco with UCS, with FlexPod, obviously the VCE, which seems to continue to stumble along, HP's doing converged stacks, Dell's getting into converged stacks. But the numbers showed that customers are half as interested in converged solutions as they were last year.
1: Yes, that's interesting.
0: Uh, not that many people will care anyway, it uh, must be said, less than 10% said they were cared about it in 2013, but only 5% said they cared in 2014.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I think, uh, and I could, if I had a guess, can I guess? Please, this is what the podcast is for.
1: <laughs> Rampant speculation.
0: Yeah, let's just make stuff up. Uh, <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, one of the other messages that came through is that getting CapEx or getting large budgetary amounts is very difficult. People have the same budget this year as they did last year. They're expecting their data center resources to grow by 20 to 25%, most people. And so same money, 25% more resources in the data center, and very hard to get CapEx. That's not exactly a formula for innovation. Right. So I think that those converged systems, you've kind of got to find a million dollars to find an entry point. You know, if you're going to buy a FlexPod or a VCV block or a... HP Cloud Matrix, it's a big upfront investment.
1: So you're saying that's potentially holding up traction in the market because of that CapEx problem?
0: I think it's one of these things where vendors thought it was a good idea and customers don't like it.
1: Um, do you, it, it do you anticipate or think that it could be a possibility that you could do this kind of thing on layaway where the vendors say, you know, we'll, we'll try to chunk it up a little bit so you can, we'll start you off with X amount of capacity and then as you pay more into it, we can uh, unlock more for you? I don't think so.
0: I think the days of doing this self-funded delivery, mm-hmm. the companies used to – what they used to do is delay their cash – use it to take money out of their cash flow to fund that type of stuff. Yeah, And so it was an internal accounting trick to move, you know you move a couple of billion dollars of unused cash flow (laughs) and uh, stick it over in an account over here and then you loan it to your customers effectively. Sure. And then you get it back eventually. I think that with the margin tightening going on and from the discussions that I've had with various investors is those types of, you know, Cisco's trying to sustain its profit margins even as its profit margins, selling profit margins drop. So your ability to fund it through these finance purchases is less you can't let that money go when you're trying to do profit this quarter, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Right, right.
0: So when it was a highly profitable business and, you know, you had almost more profit than you know what to do with and you wanted to stash them away so that you could always announce more profits next quarter, it was a great way to do business, but probably not. So I don't see those sort of, you know, pay-as-you-go plans sticking around for much longer because of the cost of them.
1: Uh That makes sense. They don't
0: don't align with business models. There might be some left over, but – I think, you know, it's just when data center – well, the other part of here was uh, data center consolidation or data center convergence was a big topic in 2013. Almost 30% of people said that data center convergence was a big topic for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And again, in 2014, let me just look up the number, he says, quickly trying to find the <laughs> – <laughs> Find the chart. Find the chart, which is here somewhere. uh um, uh, data center consolidation, a lot of people said uh, they wanted to, um, like 25% said it was a top of mind issue. And in 2014, it was less than five. And the, the written comments where we asked people about that said, it's just we can't find the funding. So mm-hmm. if you want to consolidate data centers, you've got to build new data centers or refurbish existing ones. And that requires millions and millions of dollars and weeks and weeks of work.
1: Sure. That
0: years, and months. Years of, you know, I've seen data center projects that last five to ten years at a time. Uh-huh. Mm. So that requires a lot of commitment over a long period of time. And that's not the current environment that we live in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it certainly isn't.
0: So, you know, small messages that are sort of logically consistent. CapEx is constrained, not because... We haven't got any CapEx. People have in their budgets. They just don't have spare CapEx to build on innovation projects like data center convergence or replacing the current ITIL type strategy of buying a server for what you need or buying one more server, buying one more switch, buying one more thing, one more this.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that also comes out in one of the other charts uh, where we asked respondents about top requirements for application infrastructure. And the first two by a far degree were reliability and availability Hmm. and security and data protection which I read as you know, we just got to keep the lights on and keep things running. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, which makes sense, uh, mm. but it, it also is a drag uh, on taking advantage of some of the new technologies and the new options that are coming out.
0: Okay, so two more small points that were quite, uh, quite different. Uh, one is, what was the, we asked the question of what, which of these trends will have the greatest impact on your data center operations in the coming 12 months? And uh, the two absolute standouts were 10 gigabit per second, Network technologies and Mm -hmm. storage growth having a resurgence. Now, when you map these out over three years, it's quite odd. Uh, Storage growth was 40% of people in 2012, only 30% of people in 2013, but 37% in 2014. So we used to care, then we didn't care quite so much, but now we care a lot more than we did before. (laughs) It's just like a storage professional not to know what they're doing, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, we're constantly hearing about uh, big data and the Internet of Things and all of the data that it's going to produce. So, you know, if you're reading the tea leaves, I, I mean, it's also easy to predict that storage is always going to grow. Um,
0: yeah, boring as hell. The 10 gig thing, of course, it was <laughs> 32%, 32%, and 37%. Yes. Uh, So only a 5% uptick in 10 gig, but still more than storage. People care more about their network than storage right about now. So I thought some interesting things there. Unfortunately, there wasn't any uh, hoop-de-la. You always hope when you do these surveys that somebody's going to say, you know, absolutely, what we're going to do is just, you know, 90% of people are moving to the cloud, so we get a great headline. Right. Um, That was one of the interesting things is that no one cares about the public cloud.
1: I was surprised to see that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they didn't care any more than – they didn't care any less than they did last year. Sure. <laughs> which, which isn't to say much. Right. So,
1: um, I mean there's also potentially the issue of self-selection if you're responding to a survey request and you happen to work in a data center, you may be mm-hmm. less tuned with the public cloud than if you were
0: – No, I think that the public cloud is large You know, – we've talked about this before. Only poor people use it. If you own a data center, you're not poor. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've probably got an IT budget with $5 million a year in it. Why would you move to the cloud when you can all buy it much cheaper than putting it into Google Compute? So. It's
1: the technology class system.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, one final thing is that the percentage of virtualized servers by the end of 2015, is uh, this is in chart 20. You can go and get the report and download it from the Information Week website. There'll be a link in the show notes, which will be at packetpushes.net on the network break on show 13, which is this one, uh, almost 20% of people said they have more than 90% virtualized servers by the end of 2015, and 23% at 75 to 90%. So that means we're starting to reach significant levels of data centers which are almost completely virtualized. Yep. Uh, not surprising, but the interesting part is there's a lot of people who are still well below 50%. So So, if you're bored about virtualization now, prepare to be even more bored in the years ahead.
1: (laughs) Bad news for podcast hosts. Yeah, yeah.
0: good news for VMware, who got the blind share of all that business. Moving on, I think we've done enough of this self-referential stuff. It's not a bad report. Um, I'm very pleased with how it turned out, and thanks to the editors at Information Week, who made me much smarter than I probably am. Well, one of them said to me, I think Lorna said the other day, somebody said the other day that your editor is like the auto-tune of music. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to go with that. I like yes. it very much. Uh, there's an article here from a website called firstround.com. I've never heard of it before, but somebody sent me a leak, and this is a guy writing an article Says the the case for why marketing should have its own engineers. Now, in the technology industry, especially among startups, this shouldn't be news. Everybody should have technology in the marketing space, space surely.
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I didn't have a chance to look at this very closely. What, what mm. is the, the reasoning?
0: Well, the thrust of it is is that if you're going to do marketing, you shouldn't have a bunch of technologists sitting in the back room um, doing technology stuff without looking about how it can be applied. So you could hire a marketing person who may be you know extra special at handwriting tweets custom loving tweets and things like that, uh-huh. but without a without a bridge between marketing and engineering, somebody who knows enough about engineering as well as the the other side of it the marketing side you know i'd like, I know that, that Americans like to call them evangelists, which <laughs> is that
1: yeah. I think the marketing department came up with that,
0: actually. Yeah, they probably did, but it's a little bit too religious for me to take it seriously (laughs) because I'm thinking of certain disreputable. uh, You know how you've got those weird churches in America where you live? Yes, we do. You know, and those evangelists, you know, the ones that do all the weird stuff.
1: The ones who do not practice what they preach, yes.
0: Yes, yes. So I don't like the idea of evangelists very much. It sort of sends creepy things. I believe the church and the state should live separately. You know, people can make that choice, just don't bring it home. Um, but, but this article sort of talks about, you know, because marketing in a startup, when you're developing a technology, you often get so focused on the what you're doing that you forget... The selling, what is, what's the value that you're bringing to the customer? You can get so caught up in the details that you can forget the big picture. Sure. And uh, as he says here, the point of marketing is not to get it right the first time. You have to get it right the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. And this is what leads companies into pivots. So, uh, for example, this week, I think, yes, by the time this publishes, we'll have news from Big Switch about their new announcement Right, and they will be doing a pivot later and have more details. So keep tuned for the website on the internet for that.
1: Uh-huh.
0: If a little bit, a little bit more marketing savvy might have got somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking thinking about your description. I, I wonder maybe if the better approach is that the engineering team should have marketers.
0: Yeah, put marketers inside of engineering teams. Yeah, sometimes they gum up the works. So you do need some fairly inspired – one of the problems with putting marketing people inside of engineering teams is that often the language barrier is too high. Mm -hmm. You have people who are trained in a certain discipline and their mindsets in a certain place, which is usually about, you know, liberal arts stuff, you know, wandering around (laughs) and having hugs and arguing about Sartre – Sartre (laughs) – uh, not really focused on, you know, how technology actually works. I think it's more like you want to bridge out from the engineering team into the network, into the marketing. Um,
1: I could see that. I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wonder if there would be a stigma among engineers if you were a marketing engineer, uh, actually a real engineer. I guess it's a difficult one, right? So if we look at the success
0: of companies like Cisco who have proven that product managers and um, TME technical marketing engineers
1: uh-huh. is
0: a very su- has been a very successful model for them. That's true. And those engineers are often a special breed apart. They're nerdy enough to stay in touch with the technology, but also human enough to be able to communicate it <laughs> at some level. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why you cyborgs. We're, we're signing up cyborgs. Why
0: you giggle? <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I don't giggle at all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have to come up with a name for that laugh, I think. There you go. Um, it's a good article. i give it a quick read. Um, it's just a reminder that technology is a business thing, and it's worth uh, talking about. Uh, last week, of course, we talked a lot about the 25 gigabit Ethernet standard, yes. uh, with the news this week that Brocade is joining up.
1: Yes. Uh, some momentum.
0: Yes. Uh, I've got, I'll have an article out on network computing in the next week or so. I know I promised this last week, but I've been conducting interviews. Um, lots more to learn. Basically, I'm convinced that it's going to be a big deal. It's really designed as an in-rack technology, which is what I said in the last show, and it's designed to connect servers to top of rack. The idea is um, that a 25 gig E will cost 1.5 times the price of a 10 gig SFP. And therefore, it's going to be, in terms of bits per dollar, it's much more effective.
1: Then going right to a 40?
0: Yeah, a 40 gig is actually very expensive because it has four 10 gig lanes. Yes. And because it has four 10 gig lanes, you need four Serdes chips. Uh And so the 40 gig actually has to have this big fat piece of silicon with lots and lots, and it's expensive. And it will never get cheap because of its design, unless you go to a 1 by 40 gig. And who's going to go and manufacture a 40 gig laser when the 100 gig... Already is four by twenty-fives, so why not just take the hundred gig laser, turn it into a twenty-five, call it done.
1: Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, although I did notice some uh, Twitter—I uh, do not want to say attacks, but some humorous pokes at the need for twenty-five gig. <laughs> Uh yes, a little, so, a little scoffing, a little scoffing. A little scoffing. I agree with, you know, I was a little dubious about
0: it, but I spoke to uh, Ansel Shadana, Anshul Sadana, I hope I get that right, Anshul. Um, he indicated that basically Microsoft and Google need this. If you think about Microsoft and Google, they're running 60 RU racks, and there's sure. only one switch <laughs> slot at the top,
1: right? Right.
0: So if you've got 48 servers in a rack, you suddenly can't use 2x10s because uh-huh. you don't actually have two physical <laughs> slots at the top for two switches,
1: right?
0: So when you consider, I think somebody posted an article recently and said that Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Rackspace, if you take all of the cloud service providers and put them together, they're buying 30% of the servers in the world. Wow. So if 25 gig is picked up by most of those providers and Google and Microsoft are already on board, Arista's building the switches, Mellanox is ready to make the NICs, um, Broadcom's there to help make the silicon for the switch side you know there's nothing missing out of this yep. um, you know we just and it's going to be TwinX by the way so they're just going to write a file layer for the TwinX and then away we go so I don't see there's um, definite reasons as to why you want it so it's not just let's produce it and see if people come let's run the flag up the flag well there's a definite driver there's customers lined up to buy it there's manufacturers lined up to make it and now that people like uh, brocade are joining in i believe there's another 10 to be announced over the next few weeks as they sign on board and then what will happen is the 25 giga alliance will prove out all of the technology and some do the componentry and then they'll take that to the ieee and say please bless this and of course right behind them will be all of these vendors and all of these customers saying yes we want this so the ieee can't push back they really have to say yes we we can let that through
1: And this fits into a larger trend, which we've talked about in in previous podcasts about how the Googles, the Facebooks, uh, these these giant web companies are really driving the industry now Mm -hmm. as opposed to the industry telling us what we're going to get.
0: Yes, very much so. And the industry sort of guessing what people want. Right. Yeah, because the customers are saying themselves what they want. Just one final trigger here. If you follow server architecture, the big driver in server architecture will be the Grantley chipset which can drive more than 10 gigabits per second out of the server. It'll be closer to 15, I believe.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So a server with a single 10 gig won't be able to, running a Grantleys won't be able to reach its maximum networking potential. And so 25 gig is highly needed for those new chips, which will ship, I believe, later this year or, you know, into
1: 2015.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, so moving on to the next one, what's next?
1: Uh, do you want to do Rackspace, or do you want to get into let's do Rackspace?
0: Uh, Why not talk about Rackspace? That's an interesting one for cloud.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, I think it was venturebeat uh, put out a story from Rackspace. They are trying to rebrand not necessarily rebrand but re market themselves, reposition themselves to get out of the you know death spiral race to the bottom commodity play of uh, Amazon and Google. So they're essentially saying, you know, it's not just about the cheapest. uh, They're breaking out their pricing so that you can see the price of renting the server, but also the price of the support you're getting. Uh, I think the idea is that you know we're we're not just uh, a cheap service; we're giving you something else.
0: I'm not too sure how that'll play out. I mean, once you go ES, do you actually care about support?
1: You know, I'm actually. I, that's something I was thinking too, and I think in some ways you do. I, I, what I, The way I took it is that maybe this is Rackspace kind of signaling the market at large that it's not just about tech support that they may want to try to move into higher levels of support. So maybe helping you, you know, design and build and deploy an application to run in the cloud, or providing some security services, or providing some analytics services, uh, getting into other things. This is total speculation on my part, but it seems like if Rackspace is going to survive, it has to significantly differentiate uh, because it can't keep up with Amazon, who can just, you know, essentially, you know, bleed its own blood, you know, for two years or five years or whatever and Mm. drive the rest of the competition out of business. So Rackspace has to do something different.
0: Yeah, I guess. But uh, I mean, how many people really need tech support for infrastructure as a service? Don't they have their own? Um, You know, if you buy a computer and you install Windows on it, who do you call? Microsoft or HP? Right. Um, You know, know, if you put it on a HP server, do you ring the server vendor or Microsoft? And these days, increasingly, if you don't, if it's just a, some, I mean, exactly what is the phonetical support that you need to get? Help with Linux? <laughs>
1: um. Well, I've, I've talked to a few other companies that actually do this kind of thing for Amazon. They become sort of a uh, services and support and, you know, uh, a, a window into what your Amazon systems are doing um, because. You know, People don't necessarily have the time to, to dig into what's going on with their Amazon services. Maybe they leave a machine up and running, whatever, and it's costing them money and they don't have any visibility into it. Um, so there's actually folks doing this, and maybe this is where Rackspace wants to go.
0: I guess they want to do the value add instead of yeah, getting they, to to the they want
1: to – They want to give you a portal. They want to give you some more views into it. They want to help you manage your spend. I mean I sort of wonder if there's a space – you know, so you've got you know IBM and SoftLayer who can do you know a very full packaged managed cloud offering for you, and then you've got you know the Amazon's you know sort of bare metal, really cheap. Is there a mid tier that could appeal to a certain segment of the market?
0: Okay. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, half the trick of supporting a a data center itself is actually the sheer challenge of. In having you know HPA, HP and IBMs and Cisco UCS servers in a rack and everyone's got its different dongle, wingle, dingle, and all their custom firmware and all their fancy nicks and silly stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And if you move all that into the cloud, well, all of a sudden your existing resources are ready to go. I mean, they just don't have to worry about the hardware bit and the cabling bit. So why would you want to call Rackspace? I guess I don't quite get it. The enterprise doesn't need tech support as a rule.
1: Right. I guess that's why I'm saying what I'm uh, I'm thinking Rackspace might be doing is trying to position themselves as being able to move up the service ladder. They haven't said anything about it. I think that could be a way they could go. Right. We'll see.
0: We'll see. So I wrote a blog post a few days ago talking about scripting does not scale for network automation. So over the years, I've been in something of a nasty scripter. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a programmer or a hacker. That would actually overstate my abilities substantially. (laughs) Uh, But my experiences with scripting have left me bitter and jaded. Uh, I've written scripts that do various things. And then as your scripts get bigger and bigger and bigger, all of a sudden you start to find that your devices don't work the way you think or your scripts have race conditions or error conditions. And you spend an awful lot of time making those scripts go. And, Fundamentally, it's all right if you're sort of having a hobby in your own back garden. It's like running a vegetable patch at home. You can run a vegetable.
1: Starve to death if your tomatoes don't.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, (laughs) at the end of the day. But uh, perhaps (laughs) the biggest thing I've had with scripting is when people leave the company, like me. There's nobody left to look (laughs) after. They're not structured. You didn't
1: document all your changes and.
0: Well, sure. The code has got lots of comments in it. But you're also assuming that uh, people can't, uh, that uh, people are actually able to, uh, how shall we say it, Uh, (laughs) that people are able to read the code. And in networking, that hasn't been the case in the past for reasons we've talked about before, because ITIL doesn't let you. Uh, But I'm not sure. um... (sighs) Anyway, so Plexi came up with a response. And, of course, Plexi as a company is a very interesting organization uh, product because it's not so much for them about the hardware it's about the software that they use to analyze the network so they have a their dsc their dynamic services engine which looks at all the flows going through the switches and builds up a a map of how all the server applications are communicating to each other and then can dynamically adjust the bandwidth in the back pane to some extent uh, so that your network is constantly adapting itself. This dynamic services engine is what makes Plexi great. The hardware is interesting because it work relies on e- optical stuff. Yes. Um, but they sort of talked about, uh, they agree with my perspective to some extent, I guess, that scripting is automation, which is true, but automation is not scripting, which is you've got to have much more than just scripts scraping the CLI or scripts scraping some secondhand XML interface that the vendor doesn't really want you to use. Yes. What are your thoughts?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that that seemed to be the case, that they are asking for more openness, more interfaces, um, so that you can get sort of beyond one-off scripts and actually have kind of a framework to interact with your network. And, And that seems more scalable.
0: Yeah, we need robustness. We need to move away from expect scripts on the CLI, which is the convention today, to using APIs. But we also need the vendors to implement decent APIs that are well-documented and stable and following good conventions. Yes. Because we don't have those today. You know, We could have had simple JSON APIs, but then Cisco goes and invents Opflex, <laughs> <you know. laughs> which, which might be good, right? And then we have VXLAN for overlays, but there's no configuration, there's no standardized OPIs for configuring VXLAN yet. Mm-hmm. OVSDB is where we're at today, but everybody's using what they call OVSDB+, which is their own proprietary extension. <laughs> as
1: as <laughs> and it's kind of like, um, yeah.
0: We're getting there we're getting there at least we've got OVsdB and we've got over now we can move the plus more into
1: the not plus part of it maybe that's right a little bit at a time
0: all right Plexi gets a second mention this week why don't you go at this bare metal switching thing
1: yeah this was a post from uh, Michael Bouchong uh talking about the uh, impact on potential impact on, on resellers of the bare metal switching so essentially looking at you know at bare metal switching puts prices on margins uh, for the big vendors and so where can the big vendors start to get some of that margin back and he he's positing that they could start squeezing some of their resellers
0: so I had a big problem with this article when I read it is um, you can't squeeze blood out of a stone in the UK <laughs> resellers <laughs> are going broke at a stunning rate Um Cisco purged 40% of its resellers recently to try and make them bigger, which would theoretically make you know bigger resellers should theoretically be more profitable and be able to support professional services. Uh-huh. But um, the vendors consist, the resellers in the in here and in the US are consistently selling between six and eight percent margins on Cisco kit.
1: Uh-huh.
0: That's not even a return on the money invested in terms of even with interest rates at 1%, you'd be better off going and taking a million dollars and putting it in the bank than you would be buying and selling Cisco kit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't see how you can tighten up the the margins in the reseller industry much more than they already are. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many resellers have lasted longer than 10 years outside of Dimension Data?
1: Yeah, not a lot.
0: Not a lot. So if if it was so profitable and you could tighten up those profit margins... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's no evidence of that. Right. Uh, so I think it's more likely that the vendors are going to have to either bolster their internal support organizations if they want to maintain profit margins, which they aren't going to do because they don't want to upset the resellers or they're going to have to just get cheaper.
1: Uh-huh. So if which you take... Upset Wall Street.
0: Yeah, but which one of those is a winner? The resellers will either go broke and then there's no resellers and the vendors have to go direct or... The resellers stay where they are. The the vendors build um, an engineering force that does the sales and the installation and then displaces the resellers. So the resellers go broke, and then the vendors have to employ the engineers anyway. Right. Or they have to get less margin and leave the resellers in play because resellers are cheaper than the vendors doing it.
1: Yep.
0: Which one of those three scenarios do you want?
1: Uh, Me personally, I I think I would just – uh, trim my margins and mm. take the hit from Wall Street and move on. Smile as you go under. That's right. <laughs> 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 I mean, I I honestly think that um, we as a economic force put too much stake uh, on short term returns and and Wall Street you know quarterly report. So I think. Mm. It's uh, a
0: big problem with Cisco because the ve- the uh, executives get such stunningly generous share options. I don't know. If well, you know there's
1: also that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you're at Cisco, short term really, really matters because it's yep. your next helicopter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the 2015 models really are splendid. They are. They are. Some of them, you know. The Corinthian leather seats. Yeah. You don't want to be going
0: to the Hamptons in a 2012 <laughs> model. <laughs> But yeah, no, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Cisco executives have a – many people on Wall Street have criticized Cisco executives for massive share payout, bonuses and payouts, uh, in addition to significant and generous cash components as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being a a senior executive at Cisco is a very richly rewarding experience, shall we say, and uh, many shareholders are less than pleased and have – uh, year on year, complained that uh, the payouts to executives does not seem to be warranted, given that the share price doesn't go up. Sure. And there's not actually they're not paying out that much of a dividend. Yeah. But that's a different discussion. Well, I think uh, that's about it for this week. You got any more?
1: Uh, I, that's it for me.
0: All right. Well, and my, you know, coincidentally, my uh, coffee's finished. By the way, what about yours?
1: I'm ready for another.
0: Well, let's take the break. Let's declare the break over. Everybody should go back to work. We'll look forward to seeing you on the network break in another week or two when there's things to talk about. What are you? Where can people find you, Andrew?
1: Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at interop underscore Andrew or at informationweek.com slash interop. And I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on the Twitter as at etherealmind or
0: on my blog as etherealmind.com. You can find more about the show at packetpushes.net. Please come along, ask questions, and we'll get to you as quickly as we can. And thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye.